This podcast includes graphic descriptions of sexual assault. It may not be suitable for all listeners. I'm just emotional. It's just a lot. I just been waiting for this for so long, you know? Courtney Wilde has been waiting for this day for 11 years. I'm here in New York, and it's just, it's a lot to take in, for sure. We've been waiting for this day forever, and now it's finally came, so it's almost unimaginable that it finally, he's in handcuffs for once, how he should be. It's a warm and humid Monday morning on July 8th, 2019, and for the past two days, Jeffrey Epstein has been behind bars in a federal lockup in Lower Manhattan. I've just felt like I'm in a twilight zone. It feels so unreal. Like, I have to wake myself up from it. Finally, after all these years, 11 years, it's actually paid off. Courtney's been picked up in a town car from her hotel, and she's headed to the courthouse, where Jeffrey Epstein is going to make his first appearance. In the air conditioning of the car, she takes the few moments left to calm herself, almost seeming to meditate. She's dressed simply, her brown hair neatly falls on her shoulders, and she's wearing a white button-down with the sleeves rolled up. I definitely did not think this day would ever come. There's been so many times I've said that Jeffrey Epstein will never go to jail. He has too much money. He's too well-connected. Thank God that finally justice is being served, no matter who you know or how wealthy you are. When Courtney Wilde and her attorney, Brad Edwards, found out that Epstein had been arrested over the weekend, they wasted no time getting to New York. We're actually going to his arraignment, Jeffrey Epstein's arraignment, and for the first time I get to see him face-to-face, the person who sexually abused me and all my friends for years, multiple years. For the first time, he's in federal custody, he's in handcuffs. It's hard for Courtney to describe what all this means to her. The emotion I carry in my heart towards this is just unexplainable. For 11 years, she's fought against Epstein and her own government to see Epstein brought to justice. But as hopeful as she is, Courtney is also tempering her expectations. This whole case has been so corrupted by who he knows and his connections. Definitely trust issues with keeping him in jail because they just have not done a good job of doing that. And sure enough, she had good reason to be skeptical. Thanks for joining us. We are coming on the air with breaking news. Sources telling ABC News that Jeffrey Epstein has died. More than a decade after reaching a deal with federal prosecutors in Florida, Jeffrey Epstein probably thought he was free and clear. I'm sure that he must have felt like, you know, he had put all this behind him and that he was out of the woods. But he was caught off guard as federal agents took him into custody last summer. A billionaire financier is in custody. Jeffrey Epstein was arrested at New Jersey's Teterboro Airport after returning on a flight from France. But a little more than a month after he'd be put in handcuffs, Epstein would be dead. That's the biggest injustice that we could have gotten. I needed him to hear what I had to say. And somebody or himself, you know, however he died, has robbed me of that justice. And his victims were left once again to try and pick up the pieces. I feel like we all stood together and we were all bonded. I think that all of us victims were bonded for life for sure. 
I'm Mark Remillard, and today on the final episode of Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein's victims from all over the country would show up for their long-awaited day in court, but the man they hoped to face wouldn't be there. And just because Epstein is dead doesn't mean his victims are done fighting for justice. Chapter 9. Far From Over. Agents hauling out boxes of the financier's belongings. Sources say Epstein was arrested in a covert operation as he landed on a flight from France. So Saturday around 5 p.m., I got a phone call from my attorney, Brad Edwards, and he was just like, where are you? This was a moment Courtney Wilde says she never thought she'd see. He's like, Courtney, I have the best news. We got him. He's in he's in cuffs right now. And I was like, wait, what? You got who? And he's like, Jeffrey Epstein. They just arrested him when he got off his plane. Jeffrey Epstein in handcuffs, facing federal sex crimes. Courtney says she could hardly believe what her attorney, Brad Edwards, was telling her. That was my first instinct. My mind went to, okay, well, did you see him in cuffs? Are you sure he's in cuffs? Because we just have such bad trust issues with the U.S. State Attorney's Office actually keeping this man locked up. But once Courtney accepted, it was true. It was so crazy, the emotion. I just busted, for one, I just busted out crying. I couldn't even control it. And then I just started screaming, we got him, (laughs) on the phone with my attorney, and he was screaming the same thing. Just hours before that phone call, on Saturday, July 6th, 2019, Jeffrey Epstein had been taken into custody at Teterboro Airport in New Jersey, a small airport just across the Hudson River from New York, often used for private jets. Months earlier, federal investigators in New York had quietly launched an investigation into Epstein. ABC News senior investigative reporter Aaron Katursky. When word came that Jeffrey Epstein's private plane had landed in New York, that's when the FBI pounced. Word of the arrest would instantly make headlines. The surprise arrest of billionaire Jeffrey Epstein. Arrested and charged with sex trafficking. Girls allegedly as young as 14. Disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein is behind bars, but fighting to get out. And not long after Epstein was taken into custody, another team of investigators was kicking in the massive wooden door to Epstein's mansion on 71st Street. New raid video showing federal agents as they bust open the door of his seven-story, $77 million home on Manhattan's Upper East Side. In a dramatic news conference on Monday, the U.S. attorney saying inside... I never dreamed that he would be arrested. I was, I was just hoping that you know, there would be more public awareness and that he would not be able to continue to do the types of things he was doing. You'll remember Annie Farmer and her older sister, Maria. Like Courtney Wilde, they would hear about Epstein's arrest shortly after it occurred. Maria actually received a text, and we were driving, and she just yelled, and I didn't know what had happened. And um, and then she read it, and then I just, I'm just looking at my phone, and then I just start getting text messages saying, did you see this? We were so excited. We literally jumped up and down. We were, hugging, we were both crying. crying. Yeah. My mom was crying. It was a very yeah. exciting moment. For that moment, it felt really good. I remember feeling hope for the first time in a long time. Michelle Licata and Shantae Davies were also surprised by the news. Finding out that Jeffrey Epstein was put in jail was so relieving to me. 
It's been such a long time that I've waited for this this one day just to happen, and it's finally come. And I just woke up to just, you know, 100 text messages and saying, you know, he's been arrested. I do feel relief in it. I do. But having said that, there's still a very powerful feeling of, okay, what's going to happen next? Like, who's paid off? Who's going to help him? Who's... How is he going to get out of this, basically? If it's up to him, he's not going to go spend the rest of his life behind bars. You know, he has two islands and two airplanes. He's going to figure out how to maneuver out of that one. For Courtney Wilde and Michelle Licata, the next few days would be a whirlwind as they made their way to New York to be in the courtroom as Epstein made his first court appearance. I'm on a plane to New York, and now I actually get to see him in handcuffs on the other side of the courtroom, which just feels so unreal. I don't even know how I'm going to react to it yet, you know? This is 11 years going. It's just a whole bunch of built-up emotions that are finally, like, being brought to a head. Once in New York, Courtney Wilde and Michelle Licata met for the first time. I felt like, okay, she's actually, like another person that has the exact same story as me because I have never met anybody else that knows exactly how I'm feeling. And it's always been so difficult to even talk to any of my friends or anybody in general. It was really comforting. It was comforting, actually. As soon as I met her, I was just like, you know, immediate nothing but love, kindness, joy, you know, like, I just felt like you're one of me, you know? Yeah, I know, like, I was, like, looking in the mirror, I'm like, okay, I don't have to hide any secrets, you know? Everything's out in the open. Yeah. All right, so we just got off the train in lower Manhattan, heading to the U.S. Attorney's Office, where they're about to hold a press conference to tell us about... But ahead of Epstein's first court appearance... The U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Jeffrey Berman, would publicly announce the charges against Epstein, some of which stemmed from allegations by an alleged victim known to federal authorities in Florida more than a decade ago. Epstein is charged in a two-count indictment. First, conspiracy to commit sex trafficking, and second, the substantive crime of sex trafficking of underage girls. The alleged behavior shocks the conscience. And while the charge conduct is from a number of years ago, it is still profoundly important to the many alleged victims, now young women. They deserve their day in court, and we are proud to be standing up for them by bringing this indictment. Listening to the news conference on the way to the hearing, Courtney Wilde was brought to tears. When I heard the conference, you know, that the USA Attorney's Office was actually standing up for the victims' rights and uh, standing up for us. For once, I felt like we were being, you know, stuck up for. I felt like somebody was speaking for us and empowering us to come together and, you know, speak out about being a victim of human trafficking. That's why it was so emotional for me, because it was like, okay, finally, our government, the people we're supposed to trust, finally are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Shortly after Berman finished speaking, just down the street at the federal courthouse on Pearl Street in Manhattan, Jeffrey Epstein 
would be led into a packed courtroom. Here at federal court in New York, where the multimillionaire financier Jeffrey Epstein has just pleaded not guilty to federal sex trafficking charges. This is someone who used to socialize with presidents past and current, but now finds himself in a Navy prison jumpsuit standing before a judge while several of his victims looked on. His hair was a little bit disheveled and uh, he wasn't wearing probably as nice of threads as he's used to. Uh, he was wearing a navy blue prison uniform. For the first time, Jeffrey Epstein had set foot in federal court as a criminal defendant. When he walked in, it was like I, I got teary-eyed and I wanted to cry. It brought me back to the last time I seen him. It brought me back to my childhood. I immediately was thinking, I'm back in that massage room, and it's almost the same feeling like, God, I want to get out of here. All I could do was, like, sit at the end of my seat. I just took it all in. He's the one being, like, investigated, and they're not ripping us apart anymore. It's like, hey, look at you. Let's go through your house. Let's go through piece by piece. Like, what have you been doing? In that hearing... Epstein would say the only words he'd utter publicly during the course of these hearings for the next few weeks. Not guilty, Your Honor. ABC News senior producer James Hill, our lead reporter on this podcast. His attorneys, during their presentation, they argued that this was basically the federal government trying to make up for what they did 10 years ago, that these were the same charges, that this was a... Uh, the federal government trying to get another bite of the apple. Prosecutors for the federal government, meanwhile, would argue Epstein was a flight risk and a danger to society, and they'd divulge more about what they say they found inside Epstein's mansion. Prosecutors revealed that they found evidence that was consistent with what his victims were telling. Even the room where prosecutors said the abuse occurred the massage room was still set up in the same way it was 15 years ago when Epstein's alleged conduct was to have taken place. There were photographs, hundreds of them, that depicted uh, girls under the heading Young Miscellaneous Nudes 1 and Girl Picks Nude. And all of these photographs were found in a locked safe inside the home. When they searched his home, they found these piles of cash and diamonds and photographs. Uh, and you would think that had Epstein any inkling that this was coming, that he might have made an effort to uh, get rid of that stuff. So that's when the, U- you know, the U.S. state attorney argued, hey, listen, this is somebody's conduct who clearly has not changed in time. He has a past charge of solicitation of prostitution of minors, but it's obvious that his conduct has not changed in overtime. After the hearing, as Epstein was to be led back to his holding cell and reporters raced out of the building, Michelle took a moment. She saw Epstein standing there, and she envisioned walking up to him and saying, Hey, do you remember me? Of course not, because it's been so many other girls you couldn't even put on your hands, like, oh, yeah, I remember that one. I I ruined her life, you know. I just really wanted to, like, let him know, like, you are where you need to be. I'm sorry. You can try as hard as you want, but at the end of the day, what you did 
was wrong. There is no way around it. This is what's gonna happen and you go to jail because that's what any normal person that did what you did would be in prison the rest of their lives. Money should not be able to hide you. Outside the courthouse, Michelle and Courtney would be mobbed by cameras and reporters shouting questions. I, I, I really want to, I want to try to get him out of here. Hit, I, 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 I when we walked out of the courtroom, it, it was like the, the whole world was, was watching. They wanted to know what, what's Courtney's reaction. We're just swarmed with cameras. In fact, there were cameramen like falling over each other. The media today was out of control. It was just overwhelming. It was a lot. They were jumping over one another to kind of get get to us, which has never happened ever. Um, but, you know, I think everybody's like really focused on getting getting the story out. In the weeks after Epstein's arrest, he'd make a couple more court appearances, all building up to a pivotal bail hearing. Back here in lower Manhattan on a terribly hot, humid and rainy day, Thursday, July 18th. And this is the morning in which we'll learn whether or not Epstein will get bail pending trial. So at the bail hearing, um, they had cordoned off a section for victims and lawyers. And uh, Attorney Brad Edwards would be there, sitting once again with Courtney Wilde. But this time, there was a new face sitting in the gallery. Annie Farmer was sitting on one side of me and Courtney was on the other side. I had been planning a trip with my husband to visit his family in upstate New York. And so we were on the plane on the way there and it just occurred to me, oh my gosh, we're going to be in New York. We could go to the bail hearing. Annie Farmer says she wasn't sure what to expect. I didn't really understand enough about how it worked to know um, what potential role that I might be able to play in that. But I just wanted to be there to, you know, provide a face to um, survivors. Once again, Epstein was brought into the courtroom wearing his prison uniform and a pair of glasses. He walked over to a table next to his attorneys and took a seat, never looking into the gallery and appearing largely unfazed by what was happening. He said nothing the whole hearing as his attorneys fought to get him released. In their arguments, it was clear how important it was for Epstein to get out of the prison before the trial. It could be six months, nine months, 18 months before the trial would actually begin. They pulled out all the stops, basically said that whatever the court would require Epstein to do, he would do. Epstein's attorneys offered to put up his $77 million mansion as collateral and said Epstein could be confined to his home and under constant monitoring, among other conditions. While prosecutors again argued Epstein's wealth and resources made him a flight risk, and perhaps more importantly, they argued he remained a danger to the community. For his victims, Courtney and Annie among them, the decision of whether or not to grant Epstein bail was monumental. I mean, this is kind of a make it or break it uh, type decision that's being made by the judge. If Jeffrey Epstein gets out of jail, he gets to go back to controlling his world and controlling the witnesses and controlling the victims and everyone else. If he gets held in jail, then 
people outside are going to start cooperating against him. The case is going to get stronger and he's going to probably remain in prison for the rest of his life. As soon as he was arrested, one of the first conversations we had was, we, oh, we can't be let out on bail because he will never be caught again. But before the judge would make his decision, something extraordinary took place at the hearing. He made an unusual move in asking the victims if they would like to speak, giving them a voice, something that never happened in Florida. And Epstein had no choice but to sit there and listen. Judge Berman made mention that there were victims in the courtroom who would have the opportunity to speak. And because I had you know, not really consulted with my attorneys about doing that, I did not realize that they meant um, me. And so um, it, I was somewhat you know, wondering who, who they were referring to. And then um, as, as it unfolded, it became clear and the, the attorney's asked Courtney and I, do you guys want to speak? And so we were sort of looking at each other and conferring um, and then decided that we would. When the judge gave the victims a chance to speak out on whether if he should make bond or not, that was just amazing that the judge did that anyway. And, uh, you know, I'll be forever grateful to him for that. When he said if if any of the victims want to come forward and say something, I was waiting for that day for so long But when he said that, I was like, I just got scared. I was like, I just looked at my attorneys. I just looked at them. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. And it was something I wanted to do so bad, but it was scary. It was just, you know, and then I just looked at the back of Jeffrey's head. And then Annie said, if, you know, I'm going to. So at that point I was like, well, I'm going to, too. You know, I just jumped on the wagon, but it was something that was, I was definitely intimidated. I was scared. Courtney Wilde would speak first, standing at a podium just feet to the left of where Epstein sat. His eyes remained forward, and he rested his elbows on the table with his fingers intertwined. Being in the same room or, like, walking up to the podium, I wanted to look at him so bad. I just, at that point, it was so many emotions. And um, I think just him hearing my voice and hearing me say, you know what I thought of him and why he didn't deserve bond and why I would ask for him to receive no bond was enough for me to be happy about. But it was um, it was bittersweet because it was so many feelings when I seen him face to face. You know, it's just this as a man that's sexually abused me for my, you know, being a young girl to woman transition. And it's really affected my life in so many ways. Annie Farmer would speak next. And so as the defense attorneys gave their arguments about why they thought he should be released on bail, and I wanted to say something. As Annie's attorney, David Boys, introduced her, she looked directly at Epstein. He, he was looking forward, but I it gave me the chance to kind of, you know, to try to stare him down a little bit before I spoke. And then um, it was... Of course, nerve-wracking to speak, but it also felt really great to be heard. Epstein was stoic as Annie spoke, giving no reaction to her words. Annie Farmer is amazing, and it's just a bond. It's an undescribable bond when just me and all the other victims, when we're in each other's presence, you can't even explain. It's just an empowering feeling that happens. 
I got to meet Courtney prior to even entering into the courthouse. We um, were standing in line, um, waiting to go through security, and uh, she introduced herself. And that was like really part of this of, of this whole experience. I think just one of the most powerful things. You know, I felt um, so moved by how how powerfully she had stood up to him over all these years and to, to the government fighting this um, terrible, terrible plea deal. And so that was just, that meant a lot to me to get to, to meet her. That's the only time in a court of law, federal, state, local, county, or otherwise, that one of Epstein's victims was able to speak directly to him or speak to the court with him there to hear it. You know, it, it it had been, by that point, 24 years since Annie Farmer's experience with Epstein and Maxwell uh, in New York and New Mexico. 24 years, and she's finally given the opportunity to stand before a court and detail what had happened to her. Courtney and Annie would take their seats, the first victims in all these years, to have their voices heard in court. But the final decision on whether Epstein would ever see the outside of a prison cell again was up to the judge. If he gets out on bail, everybody better watch out. He is going to do a, a lot of damage control and a lot of damage during that damage control process. A lot of people are going to get hurt. So hopefully he stays in. And in a watershed moment that these survivors of Jeffrey Epstein had waited years for, U.S. District Judge Richard Berman, no relation to the U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Berman, would order that Epstein remain in custody. In ordering Jeffrey Epstein held without bail, Judge Richard Berman said there were no conditions that Epstein could be held under that would overcome his danger to others. Jeffrey Epstein being denied bail was the biggest order that that could ever come from the judge in the case. It was the biggest time in the case. If Jeffrey Epstein was denied bail and he was going to sit in prison, which was a place he would never be able to live, uh, that was the end of the case to me. It was a high point for victims like Courtney, who had fought for so long to not only be heard by the justice system, but listened to. And for Brad Edwards, who spent years pursuing Epstein in court battles and depositions, he says the decision to hold Epstein in jail was the beginning of the end. Once he was denied bail, I think, I, I think the words that I said were, he's dead. I didn't mean them literally at the time, but he has no way of defending the case. The evidence is going to continue to mount against him. Everyone in the world is going to turn on him the conditions for somebody charged with those types of crimes in the place where he is in prison couldn't be any worse. Um, there's just no hope for him. Just shy of two weeks later, Epstein would be found unconscious in his cell with marks around his neck and apparent suicide attempt. And although he'd briefly be put on suicide watch, that wouldn't last long. We begin tonight with that major story first reported by ABC News. Accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein is dead.
are the top five things you need to know this morning. Number one, breaking news. Sources telling ABC News that Jeffrey Epstein died by suicide overnight at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan. The shocking revelation that Jeffrey Epstein, facing the prospect of life in prison on sex trafficking charges, was found dead in his jail cell from an apparent suicide on Saturday. Jeffrey Epstein was found dead in his federal jail cell in the early morning hours of August 10th, 2019 just 16 days after his first apparent suicide attempt. I woke up in the morning and my phone was going crazy. I have all these text messages. The first call that I make is to Brad. And Brad's like, he's on a plane. Yes, this is this happened and you know, he'll get back to me. The emotions that I felt are really I don't know if they're strange or not, but I was very sad at first. And then that turned into some anger. And now I'm, now I'm mad. Now I want answers. I was making breakfast. One of my friends was messaging me on Facebook. Did you see? Did you see another friend message? Did you see? And, and I was like, no. And at, at first I was like, oh, oh, my gosh. You know, he felt the need to kill himself because of the things that he did to all these women. The Manhattan medical examiner would rule Epstein's death a suicide, but almost immediately afterward, theories that he had been murdered or at least allowed to kill himself began circulating widely online. The phrase, Epstein didn't kill himself, became a viral meme. You don't have to be a tinfoil hat conspiracist to have lots of questions about how Jeffrey Epstein died in a high-security federal prison at a time when he was probably the most high-profile inmate in the system. Uh, You don't have to believe in the wildest conspiracy theories to wonder how could that have happened. He was, for a time, uh, put under a suicide watch. He was isolated. He was put in a a special wing of, of MCC. And that proved to be a... Uh, precursor of what was to come. Our senior reporter, Aaron Katursky, was the first to break the news of Epstein's death and continues to follow the story. There were cameras that weren't working. There were the the guards that, that allegedly didn't do their rounds. There were a number of circumstantial pieces of evidence that, that seemed to not be too kosher when it came to Jeffrey Epstein's incarceration. The two guards who were monitoring the cell block where Epstein was housed the night he died have both pleaded not guilty to charges that they falsified records to show that they had checked in on Epstein. The theories about Epstein's death wouldn't just be online, though. Epstein's brother, Mark, would seek out a second opinion on the cause of death. Mark Epstein ended up hiring his own pathologist to conduct an investigation. Dr. Michael Baden was allowed to sit in with uh, the medical examiner's office here in New York and, and reached a, a different conclusion than, than the official one that Jeffrey Epstein died by suicide. And the family is not content uh, and, and the estate is not content. A number of Epstein's survivors also questioned what happened with his death. There's just so much involved with his suicide that makes me question Okay, is this him getting another deal of a lifetime? I was really upset because it was like, okay, this is just another another time where he gets to slip through the cracks. Um, 
and another chance that he gets to not be held accountable for the things that he's done. With knowing that he already tried it, it didn't work. Uh, yes, when it comes to the government, I'm very, very angry. Throughout this whole case, not just with his death, they have done nothing but enable him to be the person that he was. There's no words. It's just pure anger at this point. There's no way that guy took his life. But now they've made sure we never know everything. To me, it's frustrating when people act that it, act like it's a conspiracy theory to think right. that anything besides suicide could have happened because it doesn't, to me, take into this it, it take into consideration this wider context of the government in every single turn dropping the ball so terribly. With Epstein dead, his criminal case would be stopped in its tracks. His death meant that U.S. District Judge Richard Berman had no choice but to throw out the criminal charges. But before he did that, Judge Berman once again extended an unusual offer to Epstein's victims, giving them the floor of a federal courtroom to tell their stories. And perhaps as a nod to the poor treatment that the victims had suffered for so long, the U.S. Attorney's Office brought them to New York at the government's expense. Other than civil litigation, there has never been an opportunity for them to speak to Epstein. There has never been an opportunity for them to tell a court, to tell the world, what had happened to them. My passport, hold on, where is my passport? It's a Monday morning, August 26th, 2019, one day before the hearing in federal court, where victims of Jeffrey Epstein have been invited to come and deliver impact statements. Okay. Shantae Davies is packing a suitcase at her home in Los Angeles. You'll remember her from our seventh episode, where she says she was taken to Epstein's private island and sexually assaulted, then later abused at nearly all of Epstein's other properties. Her hair is still wet, fresh from a shower, as she pulls it back into a slick ponytail and throws clothes into her bag, a black dress and another outfit of black pants and a white dress shirt. All right, be good. I love you guys. Stay no bark, okay? Mommy always comes back. As she says goodbye to her dogs, she's preparing for several grueling days ahead of her. Hello. Okay. She's headed to New York to take part in the hearing called by Judge Berman. I feel very empowered to speak. I feel like I cannot wait to speak. The only thing, of course, for me is missing is the fact that the one person who I really needed to hear this was is not going to be there now, you know? So, um... The next morning... Shantae found herself among roughly two dozen other women who had made their way to federal court to tell their stories, some for the very first time. For a bunch of girls who hadn't even met each other before we'd walked into this courtroom today to be bonding in the way that we had just by what we'd all said in that courtroom, um, it was, yeah, it was just pretty powerful. I was crying before it was even my turn, so definitely, you know, I, I guess to hear some of these girls speak and have a lot of what they say register for, with some of the things that I experienced. Um, I mean, it's just such a confusing feeling, really. It, yeah, it's like a... It's a bond you don't want to share, you know? You could see in that room that for the first time, 
many of these women who have felt so alone for the first time realize that there were others just like them. There are no audio recordings of the hearing, so we can't play you any tape from that day. But we had Shantae read her statement to us afterward. All right. Um, Gillen and Jeffrey took me in. They sent me to school. They gave me a job, flew me around the world, introduced me to a life I'd only dreamt of and made me feel as though I'd become a part of their family. It took me a long time to come forward. Too long, maybe. And all that it has taken to bring this man to justice has been robbed by his death. Every day, every week I've spent in the hospital since, I've suffered and he has won. Every job offer that's been offered to me and then retracted because of my connection to this case, I have suffered and he has won. Every relationship I've ended because of the abuse I endured, I have suffered and he has won. Every woman sitting in this courtroom today and all the women who have come forward and whose lives have been affected by Jeffrey Epstein's sick abuse of young girls, we have all suffered and he is still winning in death. I refuse to let this man win in death. I couldn't fight back when Jeffrey Epstein sexually abused me because I hadn't yet found my voice. Well, I found my voice now, and while Jeffrey may no longer be here to hear it, I will not stop fighting and I will not be silenced anymore. I needed him to hear the pain he's caused. His death has robbed me of that justice. Please don't rob us of that justice again. Unbeknownst to Shantae before she arrived in New York, her younger sister, Tila Davies, had also decided to come. I've never been so proud of my sister in all my life. Um, I literally could not believe my eyes when she stood up. I didn't even know she was going to speak. Annie Farmer, who spoke at Epstein's bail hearing, would again address the court. When Annie Farmer came to the podium, she used her time speaking in court to talk not about herself, but about her older sister, Maria, who was not healthy enough to attend. I had the opportunity to speak at Jeffrey Epstein's bail hearing. I'm so sorry that others will not have the opportunity to stand before him the way that I did. But I'm here today to speak on behalf of my sister, Maria Farmer, who could not be here. She risked her safety in 1996, so many years ago, to report them to no avail. And it is heartbreaking to her and to me that all this destruction has been wrought since that time. And I think this is really an important signal to send to a message to victims out there that people will take you seriously, that even those in power will be held accountable. And then there was Courtney Wilde. Jeffrey Epstein robbed myself and all the other victims of our day in court to confront him one by one. And for that, he is a coward. I want to thank the U.S. attorneys for seeking justice that has been long overdue and most importantly, given us the victims our day in court to speak our peace and find some sort of closure. I feel very angry and sad that justice has never been served in this case. Thank you. An emotional hearing ended with the inevitable decision by Judge Berman to officially close the criminal case against Jeffrey Epstein. That was the final hearing in the case of the United States versus Jeffrey Epstein. As the prosecutors have made clear, it was not the end of their investigation. Epstein had been charged with two crimes, sex trafficking, but also conspiracy to commit sex trafficking. And that is what investigators are now examining. 
whether there is a case to be made against any potential co-conspirators. As we speak, federal prosecutors here are still looking at whether to charge any alleged accomplices. I think the best ending to this situation would be one day I'm, I, a neighbor yells at me and says, Maria, turn on the television. You're not going to believe it. They've rounded up all the perpetrators. And as of now... And our sources have indicated to us that Glenn Maxwell is the principal, but certainly not the only focus of that investigation. Until recently, the most public allegations against Glenn Maxwell came from Virginia Jufre. It's not how Jeffrey died, but it's how he lived. And we need to get to the bottom of everybody who was involved with that, starting with Gillen Maxwell and going along the lines there. Um, I was but as you've heard on this podcast, in recent months, there have been a number of allegations against Gillen Maxwell that have surfaced in civil lawsuits. There is Annie Farmer who says that at age 16, she was flown from her home in Arizona to Epstein's ranch in New Mexico, where she says she was sexually assaulted by Maxwell. There's Tila Davies, who says that beginning at age 17, she was flown around the country and around the world and sexually assaulted by Epstein uh, at his various homes. And she says that Epstein usually had his entourage with him, which included Maxwell. And then there's a very recent lawsuit that was filed by uh, Jane Doe against Epstein's estate and Maxwell. She says that she was recruited as a 13-year-old by Epstein and Maxwell way back in 1994. Uh, she claims that Epstein repeatedly sexually assaulted her and says that Maxwell regularly facilitated the abuse and was on some occasions even present when it happened. In, in the case of Maxwell, for example, um, I would really like to see that she is, um, that she is charged and she is put on trial. But it's likely that any investigation will take time. They want to make sure in this situation where there is a great deal of skepticism among the victims about the federal government's role in this, that when they do, if they do, bring charges against anybody else, that they don't swing and miss. They want to take their time and they want to make sure that if they do indict anyone else, that it's a rock-solid case. Glenn Maxwell has previously denied Virginia Jufre's allegations in depositions, calling her a, quote, absolute liar. But as Maxwell faces increased scrutiny and her whereabouts remain a mystery, she has not responded to any of the lawsuits filed against her since Epstein's arrest. We've also attempted to contact her for comment, but those attempts have been unsuccessful. There are two other people we've told you a lot about in this podcast who have been in the headlines as the scrutiny of their association with Jeffrey Epstein has intensified. One is Les Wexner, the 82-year-old founder of L Brands, who announced this month that he's stepping down as CEO of the company after 57 years at the helm. The announcement also came as L Brands says it sold its majority share of Victoria's Secret to a private equity firm. And then there is Prince Andrew, who prosecutors in New York said just weeks ago they've tried to speak with but has been uncooperative, despite the fact that he previously said he'd be willing to sit down with them. And to date, Buckingham Palace has declined to comment. 
As for Epstein's victims, the end of the criminal case against Epstein doesn't mean the end of their fight. After more than a decade of court battles to have Jeffrey Epstein's non-prosecution agreement thrown out, a federal judge ruled just last year in favor of Courtney Wilde and other Epstein victims that the agreement was made illegally. He found that the government had failed to confer adequately with the victims before reaching the deal, and therefore uh, it had violated the Crime Victims' Rights Act. From Now, that was a victory for the victims, but it wasn't the end of the case, because at that point, the judge then had to figure out, well, what is the remedy for the violation? That question was still outstanding when Epstein was found dead several months later on August 10th. And much like the criminal case, shortly after Epstein's death, a judge moved to close Courtney's case. The victims had asked for a number of remedies, including uh, tearing up the non-prosecution agreement, um, getting access to the internal deliberations of the Justice Department in advance of making the deal. They asked for the rights to speak at a hearing. They asked for a meeting with the prosecutors who made the deal. And the judge in Florida, following Epstein's death, said he could, he could offer none of those remedies, and he closed the case. But Courtney and Brad, once again, refused to give up. When he died, there's so many people were like, what do you think is going to happen with the CVRA? And I, I had nothing but confidence. I'm like, that has nothing to do with it. We still want answers, and we've just never had them. I mean, the victim's argument is that Epstein's death does not end the case, because the case was against the government, and the government uh, is the entity which violated the law, according to the court's ruling. But we're just keeping our fingers crossed, because um, I think if the right people know about it, we already have enough support from just everybody in general. We really do. And um, I feel like if it's exposed more and the right people hear about it, maybe the right people in the higher, the higher ups can help us. Courtney Wilde and her attorneys have appealed that district court ruling that ended her case uh, to the 11th Circuit Federal Court of Appeals. And there was a hearing held in January, and everyone is now just waiting for the result. And while it's not clear what the outcome of the appeal will be, Brad Edwards and Courtney Wilde did hear for the first time an apology from the U.S. government. The issue is whether or not the office was fully transparent with Ms. Wilde um, about what it is that was going on with respect to the non-prosecution agreement. And they made a mistake in causing her to believe that the case was ongoing when, in fact, the non-prosecution agreement had been signed. The government should have communicated in a straightforward and transparent way with Ms. Wilde. And for that, we are genuinely sorry. Courtney Wilde's fight has also taken her all the way to the U.S. Capitol, as Congresswoman Jackie Speer introduced the Courtney Wilde Crime Victims' Rights Reform Act of 2019. So I've introduced a bill named after her that is going to put some teeth in the law. It's going to make sure every victim is represented by an attorney, that they can receive restitution of up to $15,000, and that every prosecutor has to keep them informed if they are developing any plea deals, as they did with Jeffrey Epstein. So, Courtney, thank you so much. Thank you. In the wake of Epstein's death, another battle has begun over how to handle his more than $600 million estate. Two days before his death in prison, Epstein had signed a, 
a new updated will and testament. And he named it as the co-executors uh, of the estate, his longtime attorney and longtime accountant. Uh, and the sole heir to Epstein's uh, fortune to his estate is his brother, Mark. Almost immediately after Epstein's death, lawsuits from his victims began pouring in. Uh, there are uh, at least 22 lawsuits involving upwards of 30 women now uh, in the courts against the estate. The estate has proposed uh, creating a victim compensation fund, which would be you know, similar in nature to uh, the compensation fund uh, for 9-11 victims. But while a number of victims and the estate agreed a compensation fund was a good plan, the effort would grind to a halt once the attorney general for the U.S. Virgin Islands stepped in. The roadblock to this plan uh, appeared in January when the government of the United States Virgin Islands filed a civil action against Epstein's estate and all of the companies that uh, exist in the Virgin Islands that happen to own most of Epstein's assets. Earlier this month, a court hearing was held in the Virgin Islands over Epstein's estate. And while there, our lead reporter, ABC News senior producer James Hill, spoke with the territory's attorney general, Denise George. Mr. Epstein had a lot of companies, a, a web of companies that um, worked together in different ways that he owned, but it was in such a way that concealed a lot of his criminal activity. We are, are continuously um, investigating to get the full picture. George says that since Epstein's companies and assets, his homes, his planes, etc., may have been used to facilitate or cover up his crimes, the Virgin Islands government is bound by law to seize them. Effectively, what they're saying is that Epstein and his many companies and corporations and nonprofit organizations that were based in the Virgin Islands are all wrapped up together as this criminal enterprise. And until that can be sorted out, not only has the compensation fund been put on hold, the entire estate has been locked down too. And at this point, the estate is essentially frozen. They can't pay their bills. They're stuck. To examine Jeffrey Epstein's case in 2019, you're looking through a much different lens than that of his first case nearly 15 years ago. The fallout from the Weinstein scandal is reverberating in countless other industries as women feel empowered to tell their stories for the first time. A judge in Pennsylvania has just sentenced Bill Cosby to no less than three and no more than 10 years behind bars. Nasser is being sued by more than 140 women who say he sexually abused them. The Me Too campaign was first created by Tarana Burke. This is not about me, it's about survivors. And it's about what survivors need to be healthy and whole. Victims of sexual abuse and misconduct have raised their voices and the dawn of a new day and a new name, Me Too, has emerged. Suddenly, the rich, powerful, and famous are beginning to be held accountable. And the accusers well, they say, finally, people are listening to them. I think just like over the over time, um, Bill Cosby, um, the Me Too movement, that was a big thing. These women started coming out and say, hey, I was sexually abused. I was sexually assaulted. I was sexually abused by this wealthy person. 
or you know by him but it happened years ago but I'm I'm telling but for the first time you know people believed them you know when you're just one person you feel like sometimes nobody's listening and nobody's paying attention but it it really means the world to me that people care um, and they want to find justice and and that's the one thing that I've been wanting my entire life since this has happened. Um, And it's been a really dark, deep secret for a really long time. And um, I'm just glad that I don't have to live with holding this in in silence anymore. I think there's a myriad of reasons that people don't talk about the abuse that they've experienced. And people don't report it because we have such a terrible track record in this country of that going anywhere. And there's so many times when, when reporting just leads to women being put on trial rather than the perpetrators. We silence little girls so, so often in so many different ways. And I think it's important that, you know, you know, girls, women, they all know that they have a voice and that it's okay to, you know, put up a fight if somebody's doing something that you don't like or, um, or to tell somebody if they have, you know, um, I think that maybe hopefully a lot more people will start to wake up to the fact that this is happening so much and, you know, this, it has to stop. 14 years after investigating Jeffrey Epstein, former Palm Beach Police Chief Michael Ryder is still stung by that single charge of solicitation of prostitution that was eventually filed. The law labeled them as prostitutes. The laws need to change. Uh, but the, the statute basically addresses prostitution with a child, which is impossible. Prostitution conveys that There isn't a victim in this. There's a person is willing, and a child can't be willing. A child can't consent to this. That's unfair and needs to be fixed. Members of Congress or members of the state of Florida legislature, I hope they take action. The very first voice you heard on this podcast was that of Detective Joe Riccari. Okay, your Pepsi's coming. My Pepsi's coming. First of all, I know you're freaking out. Don't freak out. Just relax, okay? All right? One of the first detectives to listen to the girls' stories and to investigate what was happening in Epstein's mansion in Palm Beach. He was a friend of mine and a colleague and someone I respected for many years. Ryder hates that Riccari didn't get a chance to see how this all played out as Riccari passed away in May of 2018 at the age of 50. But Riccari's wife, Jennifer, wanted us to know more about her late husband and read us this statement. We ask that you please remember Joe as a tough guy who had a passion for protecting others. During this investigation, Joe discovered many of the dark secrets of Jeffrey Epstein and that of his associates. Although attempts were made to silence Joe, he was never intimidated by Epstein nor his connections. He was outraged by the inequity of the justice system and was heartbroken for the victims and their families. Jeffrey Epstein died, the coward Joe worked so desperately to expose. Our prayer is that justice will be restored and those who are left to be held accountable will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. For years, neither Riccari or Ryder would speak publicly about the case, 
But that changed in 2018. Uh, he was very reluctant to speak to the Miami Herald when we did. But we both looked at each other and said that if anything get, needs to get fixed, it's probably going to be less likely to happen if we don't participate. And as a result of the expose published by the Miami Herald in November of 2018, attention around Epstein's treatment by the government and his sweetheart deal took on new life. But for Ryder, the case isn't about media attention or him or Rick Carey. This case is not about the police. This case is and has always been just about the victims. And that's the sad part of it now. We're paid to do the job. We're paid to take the lumps as law enforcement officers. But no 14 and 15-year-old girl should be expected to go through what they went through and then be treated by the system the way that they were. Um, I have a 7-year-old son and I just have a, I'm a waitress at a um, sports bar. Courtney says today her life is quiet and simple. I just have a very regular, normal life. Yeah, I'm happy and I want to move forward. It's the sisterhood of survivors, the other women who were victims of Jeffrey Epstein, that Courtney says has given her so much strength. When we went to the court date and all the victims got up and spoke, I can't tell you how many women said, my voice, I lost my voice, but now I found it. Because of this person come forward, and because of this person came, came forward, it's made me want to come forward. My message to anybody that's been sexually abused is that your voice does matter and that people will believe you. And um, yeah, it's an, that's an emotional thing, you know, because when you're sexually abused by anybody, but yeah, and that's, you know, you feel, you just feel dirty and you feel like, guilty and shameful as if it was your fault, but you also feel like nobody will believe you if you say anything. So I just want everybody to know that your voice will be heard and that people will believe you, and I'm one of them. I know there's a lot of healing that needs to happen, and now that I'm, you know, past the turmoil of it all, I guess, I'm I'm ready to, you know, continue healing in this process. For Shante Davies, the healing process is ongoing, and she finds strength in those new friendships. I mean, I did um, bond a, a little bit with a few of the girls today, and I think that, you know, we, we've exchanged a little bit of information, and, and um, you know, maybe we'll have some conversations and maybe help each other heal as a whole. And for Michelle Licata, she says she's done her best to find normalcy after Epstein. I'm 31 years old. Uh, I have... Um, you know, I take my son to the drive-in movie theater. I've got friends, spend time with family. I, and I enjoy, you know, my life. And I, I like to do everyday normal activities. It's taken me a really long time to come to this point, but I finally made it to the other side where my life is, is a good life. I absolutely stopped painting because of Epstein, and in a weird way, I kind of started painting again because of him. Because I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to honor the victims. For Maria Farmer, she's begun to paint once again. On the left is Sarah, and then you have Virginia, and then Michelle, and then Shante, Jenna, Lisa, Courtney, and Annie. These are the survivors that are still standing. Dedicating her most recent work to the sisterhood of women who bravely came forward with stories of abuse, the survivors of Jeffrey Epstein.
this group of women, this is the first time I've been a part of something where I actually feel this like really strong connection. If someone who isn't familiar with this situation comes to look at this art, I hope they see that these women are beautiful and strong and resilient and um, that they're not going anywhere. But even more important to Maria than how people view her art is how the survivors view themselves. But I want them to see how beautiful they are, and I want them to see how other people see how beautiful they are, and how inspiring and how strong. That's the main thing I want them to see. All these women are heroes, and I, uh, I want people to know that. I don't want everyone to forget. Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein, is a production of the ABC News Investigative Unit and ABC Audio, written and hosted by me, Mark Remillard, produced and edited by Kate McAuliffe. Reporting for this podcast is led by senior producer James Hill. Additional reporting by producers Pete Madden, Caitlin Fulmer, Chris Francescani, as well as senior investigative reporter Aaron Katursky. Associate producer is Emily Rachowski. Additional production assistance by Tiffany Omohundro, Hallie Freger, Prithvi Takei, Kate Holland, Caroline Hyland, and Alexandra Myers. Mixing and scoring by Evan Viola. Special thanks to Terry Lickstein, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Stacia Deshishku, Betsy Shore, Maria Matasarpadia, and Sandy Evans. Cindy Galley is our Chief of Investigative Projects, and Chris Vlasto is Senior Executive Producer. You see headlines across your screen all day, but you're busy. What do you need to know? What's actually shaping your world? I'm Brad Milkey from ABC News, and every morning we start here. It was extraordinary for us watching here in Singapore. This is ABC's new daily podcast, a handful of stories, just 20 minutes. Director Comey, thanks for being with us. Newsmakers, smart reporting, taking you straight to the heart of the story. Start here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. So there's two guys, business partners, self-made millionaires. They spend their time surfing under the California sun and live in the high life in Las Vegas until one of them ends up dead. I'm Matt Gutman from ABC News. I've worked with the team at 2020 to unravel this stunning tale of deception. Ruthless, diabolical greed. As a sociopath, he can justify anything. Subscribe to Cutthroat Inc. That's I-N-C wherever you're listening now.